Inside the Game, brought to you by Flex Coach and Flex Coach VR. Hey, everybody, it's Chris Riley for Inside the Game, brought to you by Flex Coach and Flex Coach VR. Today, we are joined by a man who has a deep passion for the game of hockey. He has won the Stanley Cup with the Pittsburgh Penguins in the 1992 season, was the head coach of the Hartford Whalers at 32 years of age, and now is an analyst for NBC Sports. We welcome Pierre Maguire to the show. Hey, Chris. Early beginnings of hockey. Let's go back to when you started. What was it like for you, and, and what did you get out of it when you were a kid? <laughs> well, I was growing up in Montreal, and uh, the Canadians were pretty darn good, and it was just a treat. We had outdoor rinks uh, in every part of our town. Uh, I grew up in two different towns in Montreal, Westmount and Town of Mount Royal. But in both those towns, we had numerous outdoor rinks. So my brothers and I would be at the rink probably from the time school ended <laughs> to the time it got dark. So I, I knew right away that I loved hockey. I loved being at the rink. And uh, I, I remember one when I was really young, one story, my grandfather passed away, believe it or not. And I had to walk to the rink, which was about the indoor rink, which was about a mile and a half from our house. And it was cold. And I got a hat trick in the game. And what I remember, I was probably like eight or nine years old. And I walked back to our house and everybody was crying. And I, I was like, why are they crying? And then I realized my grandfather had passed away. So it was kind of a different experience. But it made, it's something I always remembered, if you know what I mean. Yes, I do. Um, but you did come to New Jersey eventually. Mm -hmm. uh, difference between playing in Montreal and coming to New Jersey and you're at the Anglewood Field Club. What, what was it like? Was that culture shock for you? We're coming yeah, from well, the hockey I, culture. My, yeah, my brother Ryan was at the Anglewood Field Club. I was a Bergen Catholic. I came down to play football. I didn't come down here to play hockey. I, I came down to play football. And uh, football was a lot different at Bergen Catholic <laughs> than it was in Montreal. I'll tell you that. Uh, and I was an amazing opportunity. I'm so grateful for having gone to Burton Catholic for playing for Tony Carsich. My teammates from the Burton Catholic football teams are probably the tightest teammates I've had. And I played, you know, three sports in college. Um, and so I, I'm really grateful for my time there, Chris. But I would say this is that the hockey that I played for John DiCarlo at Burton Catholic High School was really good. And it was comparable to the high school hockey in Montreal, not to the midget, not to the junior hockey in Montreal but to the high school hockey in Montreal. What did that do for you, that tightness of Bergen Catholic and playing there? It's, I mean, it's a very well-known school in our area here in New Jersey for sports and for kids going on to play collegiately and to professional level. Yeah, I, I was so grateful for the opportunity to go there. The McGovern family, which is a very prominent yes. family <laughs> in Bergen County sports, they helped facilitate me going there. So I'm always grateful to the McGoverns, especially to the late Jack McGovern, who just passed away. He was the athletic director at Burton Catholic and a great football player there and also at Holy Cross. And so I, I was grateful and always will be to the McGoverns. But Coach Karsich had a huge impact on my life. And uh, I really don't believe I would have been a professional hockey player. I don't think I ever would have made it as a coach in, in professional hockey had I not had the tutelage of Tony Karsich at Burton Catholic. What did Tony do? He was an amazing guy. He was at St. Joe's after he had left BC. But what did he do differently than other coaches at that high school level? I mean, there's a lot he of guys who coach. Yeah. He made you tough. <laughs> and uh, if you weren't tough, you weren't going to play for him. Uh, he communicated really well. He had an amazing passion. But Chris, more than anything else, he made you tough. And I remember the first time going to training camp, we went out to Newton, New Jersey, in western New Jersey. And uh, we were at a seminary, believe it or not, living in these cabins. And it was three practices a day. And it was sweaty and grimy and hot and nasty. 
And I was a 16 year old kid coming down from Canada. I thought this was going to be like day camp. It was not day camp. <laughs> it was like boot camp. <laughs> I learned right away just watching what all the other guys were going through, how hard it was going to be. But it was unbelievable. The rewards were amazing afterwards. So you decide to go to Hobart, Hobart College out of BC. Why was that the right fit for you? What made well, I was actually thinking about going to St. Lawrence University. They recruited me for hockey and the coach, Leon Abbott, got fired. And so all the guys that had agreements to go there kind of got pushed aside. <laughs> so I, I was late in the process and, and Hobart was actually starting their Division three program at the time. And it wasn't Division three. It was actually Division two at the time. And uh, they told me that I could play football and hockey there. So I was really excited about that opportunity. And I did that. And then in the springtime, um, they were looking for some pitchers on the baseball team. So I pitched in baseball as well. Uh, so I really enjoyed it. I loved it, to be honest. And uh, Hobart was great for me. The teammates I had there, especially in hockey, I'll always remember and cherish. But uh, no, Hobart was a perfect school for me at that time. What was the jump like, you know, now academic wise, you know, athletic wise? I mean, I always talk about here on the show, one of the things we talk about is the pyramid shrinks once you get to college because everyone was the captain of their team. Everyone was first this, first that. Was that a big adjustment for you? You know, it was interesting because we were first, well, in football it was for sure because I was really young. I just turned 18 and I was playing against 23 and 24-year-old guys for jobs. So football is a little bit different. Hockey was not as different, and I'll tell you why. We were a first-year program. And so there might have been two or three upperclassmen that were still there that were part of the club team before a transition. Um, but the rest of us were all freshmen. And we had guys from Illinois and guys from Minnesota and guys from Montreal. We had one guy from Sudbury, Ontario. So we had players from all over, and we kind of all had to get together in a hurry. So the hockey part wasn't a big adjustment. The football part was a huge adjustment. Academically, did BC set you up pretty well going into Hobart? Chris. I, I was... I never had any issues in school. Um, you know, the classes were well done and, and I learned so much at Bourbon Catholic. I was prepared to go to college. Not a problem. 1984, you get an invite to the devil's training camp. Um, what did you take away from that experience at camp? What was that like going to a pro camp? Well, I had played pro the year before over in Europe and that's where the devil saw me and gave me the opportunity. Um, I, was there the entire camp. It was rugged. It was robust. There was Kirk Muller's first year. Ken Danico and I were partners on defense and training camp. It was good. Uh, Marshall Johnson came up to me at the end of camp and he said, uh, we see you as being a pro player. We don't see you as being an everyday NHL player, which I appreciated his honesty. And they were going to send me uh, actually to Fort Wayne, Indiana, which was part of their organization at the time. And I asked him how much of a legitimate chance did I have of making the NHL and he says you, you'd be a call-up player you're not going to be an everyday player so I was thinking about either going back to play in Europe with my old team over in Europe or trying to coach and I eventually got a coaching position and started coaching and the rest is history um what was that experience like though to go through a camp was it tough was it rigorous I mean guys are fighting for jobs I mean you know a lot of guys so fighting is an understatement <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot of fighting uh back in those days yeah no it was awesome it was a great experience um I'm forever grateful I remember we played a rookie game against the Flyers and um I set up the game winning goal in overtime to Johnny McClain believe it or not and uh, we still talk about that Johnny Mack and I <laughs> Um, so yeah, no, was, there were tons of fights though. You talk about going to a pro camp. It, it's not like that today, but it was no, back it's, then. It's very different. It was um, very different. And, uh, you, 
no matter how skilled you were, chances are you're getting in a fight at some point <laughs> in, in practice or in the preseason games. Now, you, had, you mentioned Johnny McClain, Ken Danica was there, Kurt Muller's first year. Did you see the talent level of those guys early on in that when you were there at camp? With Danico, for sure. I mean, Kenny was tough. He was big. I remember in the physical testing, he broke the Cybex machine. He was so strong. I'm not kidding you. Yeah. Uh, but I knew right away he was going to be an everyday player. My roommate was Gordy Mark. Gordy did real well before he got hurt. Um, so I knew he was going to have a legitimate chance. McLean was unbelievable around the net. You saw his hands. And Muller was, Muller was a player that uh, was just so smart. You could see he was going to play. It was just a matter of what type of player was he going to be. Was he going to be an offensive guy, defensive guy, 200-foot player? So that took some time to figure out for him. But, you know, when it was all said and done, you could see those young devils that were there. They were building towards something really good. You could see it at that time. So you head back to Hobart as a coach. Um, how did you handle this now? Because you were just there, and now you're coming back, and there's guys who are still probably there. How did you learn to separate yourself from being a teammate now to being a coach and working with the players? You know, that's such a good question, Chris. I, um, I went there, and, and believe it or not, Mike Hanna was the athletic director at Hobart at the time and had an unbelievably distinguished career there as the athletic director. And Mr. Hand uh, created the position for me. They never had an assistant coach that was a paid assistant. So here's what my pay was. I had an apartment. I had a recruiting car. I had a meal ticket to the uh, to cafeteria. cafeteria. <laughs> and I got $400 for the year. That was my pay. So I was really grateful for that opportunity. So what I did was I really wasn't around the players except being at practice or on the, at the games because more times than not, I was either a substitute school teacher at the high school in Geneva, New York, Mm -hmm. or I was on the road recruiting. And so I, when I was around, I was on the ice and it was just running drills. But when I was gone, I was out recruiting. And I was that first recruiting class that I helped get for Bill Greer at Hobart was a really good class. And those kids went on to have some real good success there. So you stay one year, you wind up going to Babson and you're going in to be an assistant for hockey and lacrosse. Did you know anything about lacrosse? I mean, oh, yeah, Hobart, yeah, because a lot of the guys I played football with at Hobart uh, were elite lacrosse players and Hobart won four national championships in a row when I was there in lacrosse. So I knew a lot about lacrosse and uh, I ended up being the head coach of the lacrosse team, believe it or not at Babs. And we had a lot of success with it too. Um, I was really proud of the guys. We played some division one games. I remember Providence was one of them and we beat Providence, uh, so we had some success in lacrosse. I enjoyed it. The hockey program at Babson was phenomenal and still is to this day. The guy that's a head coach there now, Jamie Rice, he's a player that I recruited uh, out of the River School in Boston to play at Babson. So I'm really proud of Jamie and what he's done as a coach uh, at Babson. But that program's phenomenal. What do you think of Steve Sterling? Very he much to liked him. Uh, he gave me an amazing opportunity to work for him. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Both of us ended up coaching in the NHL as head coaches, Steve with the Islanders and me with Hartford. Um, and so it's Steve still working. He's working with the Ottawa Senators organization right now. But Steve, it's fantastic to me. Uh, I'm always grateful whenever I see him uh, around. I say hello. Uh, he, he had a heart attack probably three or four years ago in Binghamton, New York. So I'm just grateful that he's still going and, and, and enjoying hockey probably more than anything else. But um, yeah, I like Steve a lot. He went to Providence and worked for Lula Amarillo. Did you see his ability as a coach and he was a teacher and, you know, oh, he's going to make that jump to Providence and have a lot of success? 
when he was well, he came back when I went to go work for Steve at Babson. He had just gone to the national championship game at Providence and left Providence. Chris Terreri was his goalie. And that was the big story of that NCAA tournament. And they lost to RPI in the national championship game. And so Steve, right after they lost, actually returned to Babson because he was eventually going to be the athletic director. So that was kind of the plan. Steve was going to be the head hockey coach and athletic director, and I was going to be the assistant coach of hockey, basically running the team because Steve was so busy as the AD, and I was going to run the lacrosse team. So was, that's how, kind of how it worked out. Now, did this set you up to get to St. Lawrence? Did these positions help you get reach St. Oh, Lawrence? Oh, 100%. So I'll give you an example. After my third year at Babson, we had had so much success as a team, um, and we had brought in so many good players as a, as a staff that a lot of people knew. So that year that I went to St. Lawrence, Ray Shiro uh, was my agent, believe it or not. And uh, I had six division one coaching offers um, after three years at Babson. So I went and visited a few of them and two of them, St. Lawrence and Clarkson were right next to one another. So Ray mm -hmm. and I drove up, believe it or not, from Boston together up to St. Lawrence, which is his alma mater. And uh, we went up there and then I went over to Clarkson, but I made my decision pretty easily after meeting with Joe Marsh. Uh, Joe was unbelievable. Uh, still one of my best friends and somebody that really helped my career a ton. So you're at St. Lawrence and you get the chance to meet Scotty Bowman. Mm -hmm. And how did that change your life? How did that change the trajectory? How did that help you in coaching by meeting him? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a long story, but I'll try to make it the Coles Notes version. Um, <laughs> Joe Marsh, who was the head coach at St. Lawrence, one of our former players, Peter McGeeo, broke his neck playing in the American Hockey League game uh, with the Springfield Indians in the American Hockey League up in Cape Breton, uh, Nova Scotia. And so Joe went to go see him in the hospital. And so I was running practices, and Scotty Bowman was there with his daughter, Alicia, uh, who was visiting the admissions office and he came when she was in the admissions office so he came he came to to hockey hockey practice. <laughs> and when practice was over i went into the office and i was about to get on the bike and start riding and this gentleman walks in with a baseball hat and sunglasses and he takes the sunglasses off and he goes hi i'm scotty bowman i said i know who you are i go i saw you watch him practice did you like it he goes i didn't like it i loved it and i was wow that's high praise coming from you sir thank you very much and he he said, can I have your phone number? So, cause there were no cell phones back then. <laughs> so um, I gave him my apartment number and I gave him my office number. And that night he called from Montreal because he, he's, he was not working for Buffalo then. No. He was working for Hockey Night in Canada. So he was actually going up to Montreal to do a Montreal Canadiens game. And so he called me from Montreal, believe it or not, my apartment. He says, I really enjoy that. Can I come back next week to watch practice again? I said, absolutely. So he came back the next week and after the practice, he says, if I go to the National Hockey League, would you come with me? And I was like, are you kidding me? Is this like April Fool's? He said, no, I'm serious. So that's how it started. What did you learn from him as like working <laughs> with players, working with coaches? I mean, he was an amazing guy when it came to blending different personalities for one common goal. I learned so much from him. Where do I start? Uh, how to prepare every day. Um, prior preparation prevents potential problems. That's basically how he lives his life. And he could have been, Scotty could have been anything. He could have been a doctor. He could have been a lawyer. He could have been an accountant. He could have been a nuclear scientist. I mean, he's brilliant. He is so smart. It's scary. Um, and it's kind of intimidating. The one time he asked me a question once, I'll never forget it. And I kind of hemmed and hawed on the answer. 
And he looked right at me and he says, if you don't know the answer, say you don't know. And I was like, okay, I don't know. <laughs> so, and that was a really good lesson because I, we lived together and worked together and won two Stanley Cups together. And um, it, I learned so much from him, uh, everything, how to watch games, how to break down players, how to evaluate different coaching strategies. I mean, so many things. I, the list is too long to keep naming them all. How did he work with guys like Mario Lemieux? How did he, I mean, those are elite players. There's a generational players. How does he work with the superstars? I mean, you he don't coach players like that. You maintain them. There's a big okay. difference. So you make sure they're well conditioned. You make sure there's air in the tires. The gas tank is full. Uh, the headspace is clear. You make sure that they're prepared. They're refined machines, basically. So you take care of them that way. Uh, and if you have to make subtle adjustments. So I'll give you an example. Mario would come up to me before we played Boston because they had big Bobby Sweeney and Bobby was a shutdown at the center Iceman. And he would say, okay, what's Sweeney done the last five games? What's he doing? What's he trending? So you tell him that information, he processes, and then he goes out and, you know, does a tap dance. Counter on the guy. He, he, he counteracts so that's, it. Yeah. That's basically how you treat those players. I mean, we had, if you think about some of the players we had, we had Mark Recchi and Kevin Stevens and Ronnie Francis and Paul Coffey, uh, Alfie Samuelson, Larry Murphy, Joey Mullen. These are guys, some of them are in the hall. Most of them are in the hall, hall of fame. fame yeah. Brian Trottier. So it was easy. And I ran those practices in Pittsburgh uh, when I was there. And I would tell you, those players were phenomenal because of their work habits more than anything else. So you just turn them loose, basically, is what you do. What did Trottier bring? Why, did, oh, why was he just incredible, like on so many levels? Second round draft choice. Hard, leader, um, proud man. Uh, he's like an extension of the coaching staff. He really was. I mean, I'll never forget in game one of the 1991 Stanley Cup finals against uh, Minnesota, Pittsburgh, I think there were 80 faceoffs. There were a lot of faceoffs in game one. Pittsburgh lost about 70% of the faceoffs. So the late Bob Johnson comes up to me and says, Make a tape of every faceoff situation and bring the center iceman in tomorrow morning, and we're going to fix that. So I brought, I put the tape together that night and I brought Mario Lemieux, Ronnie Francis, Brian Trotche, Randy Gillen, who was an elite center iceman. He was phenomenal. And Yuri Herdina into this meeting room in Pittsburgh. And we basically created face-off protocols, watching the linesman drop the puck, uh, where the Bobby Smith or Mark Bureau or Neil Broughton's hands were on their stick, Dave Gagne, those were the center icemen for Minnesota, uh, where their feet were positioned. It was amazing. So we created like a five basis protocol for faceoffs. And that's where Brian took over. He took Brian Trotty took over that meeting. It was phenomenal. It really was. Herb Brooks was there in the midst of all this, you know, when Bob Johnson had gotten sick. What was Herb like? When you, did you have a chance to work a lot with him or not? Uh, really? I didn't know. Herb was scouting. Um, but I will tell you this, after the 2000, my one really great interaction with Herb was in 2002, after the Olympics in uh, Salt Lake City, we were all at the airport together. Canada had just won. Obviously, Mario was playing for Canada. I was broadcasting for the Canadian network, TSN at the time. And so after the gold medal game was over, we all went back to our hotel rooms. And then the next morning, everybody made a bad dash to the <laughs> airport in Salt Lake because it's not a, back then. No, it's not a big a place. large airport. And so all the flights were delayed. Our flight was delayed probably four hours. And right next to my partner, Bob McKenzie and Gord Miller was Herb Brooks. And he came and sat with us and it was fascinating. He was talking about his travels on the road, about coaching the 1980 team, about the responsibility we all had to help sell the game. 
it was fantastic. That's one of those times with Herb that I will always cherish. I really will. We're talking with Pierre Maguire from NBC Sports here on Inside the Game, brought to you by Flex Coach and Flex Coach VR. All right, you head to Hartford, and you're going to be the assistant coach up there. Uh, but November 16th, 1993, you become the youngest head coach in the NHL at 32 years old. What was that leap like? Well, it wasn't a big leap. First of all, a lot of stuff was never reported correctly on that. I, um, I was also, I came over from Pittsburgh after we won our second cup. Brian Burke was a general manager, new general manager, and I really respected Brian a lot. And he made a very persuasive uh, <laughs> argument to get me to leave Pittsburgh to go to Hartford. And there were some other things involved, like assistant general manager and, and help in the scouting department and things like that. And then Brian left after nine months to go work for Commissioner Bettman at the league office. And I actually became, rather than a coach, I became the assistant general manager. And I was on the road. We had to try to sign a player by the name of Andre Nicolition. The rules were different then. We had to get him signed, by, I think it was by November the 1st. So I was actually over in Europe scouting and, and trying to get Nicolition signed. Um, and I get a call really late at night in Stockholm and it was um it was Paul Holmgren saying he was going to step down as a coach and he wanted to concentrate on being the GM and he wanted me to come back and be the head coach so I actually flew the next day I was supposed to go to Moscow but instead of going to Moscow Moscow I'm going back York. to Hartford <laughs> I went back to Hart well New York and then Hartford and uh yeah I took over the team the next day it was it was not a big leap to be honest it was not so you're coaching the Hartford Whalers um did you take a lot of stuff you had learned over the years and kind of blended it into your coaching style? Well, I took a lot of stuff from Coach Karsich, who I learned from at Bergen Catholic. <laughs> I took a lot of stuff from Joe Mart, who I really loved working with at St. Lawrence. Some stuff from Steve Sterling about practice planning, um, but a lot of stuff from Bob Johnson and Scotty Bowman. So I, I was very fortunate to be influenced by a lot of really good coaches. And then somebody that is really close to me who's about to become the head coach of Jurgarden over in Sweden, believe it or not, at the ripe old age of 70 is Barry Smith. Barry won two cups in Pittsburgh. He won three cups in Detroit. And uh, he's a very good friend of mine. He just finished working with the Chicago Blackhawks as a director of player personnel, I believe is his title. And uh, he's going over to coach in Jurgarden. So I took a lot from Barry too. What, how important is that mentoring? to a young man coming up. I mean, real, I mean, a lot of guys today don't get mentored a lot. There's a lot more. It's more like I'm looking out for myself. You don't see that today. Back when you came up, a lot more people were like, Hey, this is how you should really do it. Or this is what yeah. you should, you know, yeah. those kind of that, plays. That's really well said, Chris. I, I really agree with you hundred percent on that. Mentorship really matters a lot. Um, the coach that just won the national championship at the university of Massachusetts at Amherst, Greg Carville is a young man that, I uh, recruited to St. Lawrence. I coached there, uh, drafted him in, with, with Scotty Bowman in Pittsburgh. Um, he spoke at my wedding. I'm a huge <laughs> fan. Uh, I've watched him grow as a coach over time. I'm so proud of him. And uh, little Pete to me, just, I, I just say I, I'm so blown away by what he's accomplished. So, and he's a guy that I really like and I've tried to mentor along the way. So it doesn't work out in Hartford and you get cut loose first failure in your coaching career that you know you had a rebound from yeah no but it's interesting because i got replaced because the team was sold i think if mr gordon richard gordon was still the owner i wouldn't have been replaced but there was a new <laughs> ownership group coming in and they wanted their own people i completely understand that that's fine that's fair that's the little the reality of living in life in the national hockey league uh, i wasn't out of work long i 
I got fired on a Friday and got hired in Ottawa on a Saturday. So I was very fortunate. But did that still kind of like set you back for that 24? Were you like, kind of like, oh my gosh, I can't believe, you know. I yeah, got- I was, I was really surprised by it. Um, I wasn't expecting it because the team that I inherited, uh, we cut 83 goals against from the year before, which if you did that today's NHL, you'd be oh. a very wealthy man. Very wealthy. <laughs> um, so I was really proud of the work that we had done. Uh, we didn't have a murderous row of players, but I had a 19-year-old defenseman that it turned out to be pretty good, Chris Pronger. And I had a left winger had 44 and 42 goals in back-to-back years and Jeff Sanderson. So really proud. I had a center iceman, Andrew Castles, who had an 86-point season. So I look at it, and I'm really proud of the job that those guys did too because they were listening clearly and they continued to improve. Inside the game, brought to you by Flex Coach and Flex Coach VR. 